This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love, and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Shardar is 10 lanes clear. Scintillating air gets into second place. Church parade and shotgun. Vincent Gold come next. There's only one horse in it. You need a telescope to see the rest. They have a problem to go. And Shardar is galloping them into the ground. 15 lengths at least. Today on the Indo Daily, as part of our Unsolved series, we take a look at one of the world's most infamous kidnapping stories of all time. On the far side, Riveretto on the rails, but Shergar is the leader with three furlongs to go. He's gone two lengths clear of Silver's season, and he's opening up a lead now. But why was the disappearance of a horse so traumatic for the people of Ireland? They have a problem to go, and Shergar is galloping them into the ground. Fifteen lengths at least. Wally Swinburne looks round, he's on his own, Shardar, clear of his deal, he's climbed this mountain, he has eased up, Shardar wins the Derby! With hundreds of Gardaí and thousands of farmers searching every stud, stable and shed, the authorities left no stone unturned. The reason that a stallion cannot be kept by people who are not well up in the horsey field and who do not know how to keep the animal. Do you have any leads at the moment? I have no leads. Everyone from Libya's Colonel Gaddafi to the Italian Mafia were suspects in this kidnapping that captured the world's imagination in 1983. I'm Fiona Unchin, and today on the Elo Daily, I'm joined by Senator Maloney of the Irish Independent to ask what really happened to Shergar. Senator... Paint a picture for me of life in Ireland in the mid-1980s. Dozens of cars, trucks and buses were hijacked, turned into blazing barricades. The British government had refused to meet Sands' demands that he and other Irish Republican inmates be treated as special category prisoners, distinct from common... Crowds estimated at some 6,000 assembled outside the British Embassy for the second night running. At first, it was a peaceful gathering. Then petrol bombs were hurled at the building. 
Well, the, the 1980s were a lost decade, really. Um, a very bleak decade. People who lived through them remember how bad it was because they saw the emigration of their friends. There was a return of mass emigration in the 1980s. The economic fortunes of the country were at a very low ebb. We had had some extraordinarily high levels of uh, unemployment. At that time, it was uh, over 120,000 people, I think, which is in a much smaller country, of course, and um, huge inflation as well and high taxes. I mean, I remember paying 65 pence in the pound, in the old Irish pound, you know, when I, I was newly out of, uh, you know, into the jobs market and there was a youth unemployment levy as well on top. And I was going, I'm a youth, I'm employed, leave me alone. And the, the de- it's also another decade of the troubles. Yes, we are mired in the in the in the worst period of the troubles. Really, it was the the high point of the uh, anxiety and the uh, instability and security were the uh, the hunger strikes, ten men dead and not forgotten, and so on. And um, and this led to, to uh, a huge level of rioting on the streets of Belfast and other cities and towns on a nightly basis. There was uh, there was a protest at the at the uh, British embassy here that resulted in. Uh, a Garda, um, a truncheon charge, and so on, and there was a there was effectively a riot as those people dispersed uh, through Dublin. Many people were attacked and and shops looted and so on. But the overall pall of uh, economic desperation hung everywhere, and there was very little to sort of alleviate the general plight. Along comes a horse called Shurgar. Who was Shurgar? He was a truly great horse. And ask any man in the street if you'd walk down any high street in 1981 and said sugar oh yeah sugar he had crossed the line without a doubt where he wasn't just a, a racehorse anymore everybody knew the name sugar sugar uh, was a stallion uh, owned by the aga khan and by uh, a number of other people i think over 30 people in all uh, there was a syndicate that owned sugar sugar had been this highly hoped for uh, foal that turned then turned into a colt that showed extraordinary promise um, and a very distinctive horse. It had a silky mane, uh, a big white blaze down its nose, four white socks. So it completely stood out. And it had a haughty toss of its uh, of its neck and so on. And it was imperious. And there were, the word was out um, from the stable that this this was going to be a wonder horse. And so it proved it. Um, it won the English Derby at Epsom by a record uh, length, which I think is, still stands. Maybe somebody will correct me on that. Uh, it then proceeded to win the Irish Derby and followed up um, speedily after that with uh, with the King George. So, I mean, speed was um, what Shergar was all about. When this horse crossed the um, the finish line to the roars of the crowd, the, the other equines were specks in the distance. And what do you think it was about the horse that made the public love him so much? Well, Irish people in particular loved horse racing anyway. And, and in those times, was, you know, society was a hotbed of betting and so on. People were hoping to get on, on the next sure thing. And Shergar was a sure thing. So, the, so uh, when the horse rewards the confidence of its backers, you know, the public adulation grows. And, and Shergar went off at very short prices and so on. So pe- many people wanted this horse to keep on racing. But the syndicate decided you don't ruin a good thing. And once it had uh, assembled this, this extraordinary glittering uh, triumph of a treble of some of the, the finest um, races in, in, in the turf, uh, it was decided to, to take Sugar out and to put him to stud so that he could sire other animals 
that would inherit his genes, and these two would be grade one winners and so forth. He's a very easy horse to do anything with. He's got a very good temperament, and he's got the necessary engine. He's got a great big. Shergar was owned by the Aga Khan, one of the richest men in the world and spiritual leader to 15 million Ismaili Muslims. The Aga Khan had big plans for Shergar. At the peak of his success, he was retired from racing. Obviously, one's got to think about the future. You know, I have a lot of mares and uh, I breed my own horses, so uh, this horse is important to me as a, as a breeder. So it was effectively more lucrative to take to stop him racing and, and eliminate the risk uh, of him becoming injured and put him to stud. Yes, because if he had fallen, for instance, at a, at a, at a race, he could uh, he, he would have to be put down and so on. Much more valuable to keep him alive and to have him cover mares at vast fees. So, I mean, this is the origin of the no-fall, no-fee basis, you know. So once, uh, once uh, Sugar puts a mare in, in fall, Huge sums are paid out, you know, tens of tens of thousands, and uh, I think in all, Sugar actually uh, sired nearly forty um, horses, offspring, um, but uh, and some of them did quite well, but um, the vast majority were duds, you know. But uh, you know, people people paid to you know to have uh, the bloodline continue and to have their own bloodstock that would descend from this immortal great. Where was Shergar living then at this point, or where where was he at stud? Well, this is the extraordinary uh, ornament on on the country, insofar as um, it was seen as a real Philip and votive conference in Ireland when the Aga Khan decided he should um, he should be uh, go to stud at Ballymany in County Kildare, Ballymany stud, and down he went, and there was TV coverage of his uh, arrivals and triumph and so on. And, you know, Kildare people being what they are, they, they turned out to, to hail the hero and so on. And, uh, and nothing was too good for, for Shergar. They were practically strewing laurels at his feet as he clip-clopped his way into the stable. So he's, he's peacefully at, at stud uh, in Ballymoney. And then what dramatic events befall him? Well, Shergar was enjoying his hijinks, uh, as you can imagine, in, in the lush green paddocks and so on of Ballymany doing what he was um, being paid to do. And um, and then one night, out of the blue, in fact, just the day after a, uh, a Goff's a bloodstock sale down there, um, and Ireland was again accelerating on the back of all this fame and success. You know, our yearlings were going for a very high prices. People were flocking to Ireland. Uh, interest in Irish bloodstock was huge. And then a complete calamity when news broke uh, like a thunderclap that Shergar had been kidnapped by subversives. Armed men had, had come into the yard, uh, had, had roused people and tied up others and, uh, and, and, and got stable hands and so on to come and show them the horse. And they were giving each other um, army-style commands. Uh, and they put the, uh, the horse in a horse box and they took along its, its groom and they, got, uh, they got shunted him out after several miles and you know, shoved a, a handgun in his face and warned him not to go to, to the Gardaí for several hours. And in fact, that is what happened. The, uh, the horse disappeared in, in its horse box and the guards were, were told very early in the morning and an astonished nation woke up to hear the news on the radio. Shergar had been kidnapped. 
Britain's most valuable racehorse was stolen from a stud farm in the Irish Republic late last night. Gunmen entered the stud around nine o'clock last night. They held Mr. John Fitzgerald and his family in a back room at gunpoint. No one has ever thought that, that a horse could be stolen for any, any reason. There is, of course, the possibility that this might be a vendetta, someone holding a grudge against the Aga Khan. And the extraordinary thing about this was that um, the animal was insured up to its, <laughs> up to its tail for anything that might befall, befall it, from you know, for sickness to impotency, even to death. But it wasn't insured for kidnap because nobody could imagine the possibility of a thoroughbred animal being stolen, being pinched. So we have an eight-hour delay between kidnap and investigation beginning. What happens over the, the, the following numbers of days? Just shortly after midnight, on what subsequently turned out the evening he was ki had been kidnapped, uh, the phone rang and the voice said, uh, uh, we've got Shergar, if you uh, want proof, we'll send you his ear. Uh, at the time, I, we thought uh, he, he, they were joking because there had been nothing on the media. I think he'd only been kidnapped uh, late on in the evening, a few hours before. So nobody knew that he'd been kidnapped, and I just presumed it was a hoax. Well, um, first of all, there's very serious um, uh, roadblocks um, uh, thrown up immediately, but of course it, the horse has literally bolted at this stage, uh, so, it's, so it's useless to try and, and, and intercept anybody. The... Um, there were bad relations between the Gardaí and the um, the OUC at that time. Let's be frank. Uh, and it was a, the whole time of um, struggle and political strife over extraditions and so on. And many uh, many proposed extraditions were being shot down in the courts and so on. And there was there was bad blood, I think, and uh, poor relations between the two police forces. So they weren't coordinated. Of course, the OUC were doing their best, but the guards didn't know what they were doing, and vice versa. Politicians started uh, fulminating, and 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 meanwhile, um, all reserves were called up, and there was a vast search was going on. But um, having regard to the fact that there had been a bloodstock sale the previous uh, day, and horse boxes were going in all directions, people were were deluging the Gardaí with tip-offs of horse boxes seen at night, and of course, it was completely legitimate. So the Gardaí didn't know where to go. And we're following up lots of false leads. And in addition to that, of course, it's, it's standard IRA operations. It was to issue chaff, as it were, to, to set false leads and so on, you know. So, so besides the five or six people who took the horse, the IRA operations generally involved up to 40 to 50 people as, as watchers and stalkers and all kinds of support and, and uh, ancillary operations. So some of these false flags were, were put into operation the horse did go north of the border. That was the general belief. And soon after that, um, uh, there were attempts by the kidnappers to make contact. Um, and it was done through the Press Association. There was a recognized code, code word used. Um, and the Press Association were told to contact some prominent racing journalists who would be used as intermediaries. Uh, and they were told to get on a flight to, uh, to Belfast and to be prepared to receive, um, you know, further communications from the kidnappers. The man spoke with an educated Southern Irish accent, and he said that they were holding Shergar, and they were prepared to negotiate with three people, and he named three top London racing journalists. Derek Thompson, you wanted by the, the kidnappers of Shergar. What? Thought it was on your bike, you know. 
trying to get back to Two minutes later, he said, no, no, I'm being for real here. Uh, I'm from the Press Association in Fleet Street. You are, you've been asked, alongside Peter Campling of The Sun, Lord Oaksey of the IDV7 World of Sport, my colleague, uh, to fly over and negotiate the release of Sugar. So we have the, the kidnappers bought in, in communication with journalists as intermediaries. We have ransom demands going on, and we also have the kidnappers trying to, to sell the horse as well, all at once. That's true. And perhaps, you know, the, the, the fundamental problem with this was, while the kidnap went off perfectly, don't forget there had been a series of other uh, kidnaps around this time, or shortly afterwards, there was the, the kidnap of Ben Dawn. That was a fundraiser that produced funds. There was an attempted kidnap of Galen Weston, subsequently the supermarket tycoon, uh, and the Gardaí uh, clamped down on that and, and sprang a major success. They were lying in wait, and they captured uh, a gang that might have included, we can't prove it, but might have included some of the Shergar kidnappers because it was a kidnap unit, and they were more or less based in South Armagh. This is you know, common knowledge, to put it in inverted commas, but this is... Uh, this is what is believed today. There was a specially commissioned kidnap unit uh, and they went to work. Now, when the racing journalists then arrived at the Europa Hotel, uh, a phone call came through to directing them to go somewhere else. They were sent to a well-known racing yard in Northern Ireland. And once there, they started getting a series of phone calls that lasted um, one minute in each case. And the, the phone calls would each have, um, say, we are the kidnappers. Here's a, you know, here's, here's a code word who will use this code word in our next phone call and so on. And funny enough, all the code words were the names of, you know, other horses like Arkel or the Minstrel, you know, and on Nijinsky or Red Rum, you know. And, and uh, the point of the short phone calls was because the IRA knew well enough that, the, uh, that besides the journalists, there would be officers there as well who would be trying to trace the calls. So all these phone calls were only 60 seconds long and you know I think Derek Thompson was the the race, racing journalist who did the most of the conversations and he was under instructions to keep them talking for as long as possible because they needed 90 seconds not 60 seconds 90 seconds to trace the call and you know well even if they traced it it would have only gone to a phone box I'm sure you know <laughs> on Free Derry Corner or something <laughs> and what about the some of the, the protagonists at the centre of it all? There's a, a chief superintendent, Murphy, who becomes kind of a, an international star. It is very difficult to say at this stage. It would appear from the reports on last night's news bulletin uh, during the interview with Mr. Maxwell that the people were the people concerned. This morning, I am beginning to doubt that. And to be honest... I do not know. And have you got any leads at all now? Any, are, are you any further ahead than you were yesterday? I regret to say that I'm not. Yeah, he did. He did become a, a bit of a star because he couldn't give out any information about the um, about the investigation, and you know the investigation was bogged down. It was based in in, in Kildare. He had uh, he was besieged by journalists, and he would go out and make a, make daily press conferences on, on the steps which turned into a, a bit of a circus because um, you know people from red top newspapers across the water started floating all these extraordinary uh, theories uh, about the horse whether it had been flown to the moon for instance and of course you know, the superintendent couldn't rule anything out so he would he would say we're examining all the theories and well you know will you deny that even now uh, Shergar has been 
you know, turned into cat food, you know. And he said, we're not ruling anything out. And might that, you know, have happened in such and such a place and so on. And so he was, he couldn't, uh, he found he couldn't deny these claims. And meanwhile, then he was being asked about clairvoyance and fortune tellers and water dowsers, you know, have you been contacted by these people? And he confirmed that the Gardaí were studying the claims made by people who were, in fact, I knew somebody myself who, who, had some sort of a spinning stone and had it over the map of Ireland and was feeling this this stone being directed to certain counties and so on. It was open season for crackpots. Uh, and in fact, per, the poor superintendent rather looked like one himself at the end of the day. Meanwhile, the entire nation is literally searching for, for the horse. Every farmer in the land is, is told, look on their land. I can remember... As a kid, my father told me, if you see a horse box on the road, look into the box and see, can you see <laughs> Shergar? And this was being replicated everywhere. The search for Shergar is nationwide. Every, every stables all over Ireland will be searched right. and we'll concentrate on our own area right. here. Ultimately, though, the, the case goes pretty cold quite fast. Yeah, uh, first of all, there was, um, it was announced by the Aga Khan that he wouldn't pay a ransom and also the Irish and British governments were opposed and had we had politicians expressing a determination that there would be no ransom paid. And of course, this was deeply alarming for members of the syndicate, you know, who had vastly invested in this horse and were stood to lose an awful lot um, because the horse wasn't insured for kidnap. And its death couldn't be proven if it was dead. If it just disappeared into the ether, they were massively uh, out, out of pocket. Um uh, nonetheless, the IRA uh, believed a ransom would be paid, otherwise they wouldn't have staged the entire operation. But they perhaps hadn't put themselves into the heads of... They hadn't realised, first of all, that there were multi-owners of, of, of the horse and that therefore there would be, it might be disparity of views. And also they couldn't, um, they couldn't be sure that the syndicate would conclude that we will pay... Even if we were to pay millions to this gang, then... Uh, we wouldn't necessarily get the horse back. So they hadn't provided... Uh, while during the negotiations, they they sent some picture of the horse, um, part of the horse, with maybe not very re- recognisable as Shergar, but uh, with a photograph with the, with the date of a newspaper beside it. It was very flimsy evidence, if, evidence at all. They were trying to... Um, but the difference with a human subject is you can't you know, can't put the horse on the phone. You know, if you kidnap Don Tidy or you kidnap Galen Weston or you know or Ben Dunn, they can come on the on the phone and say, "Would you, for God's sake, pay the ransom?" The horse can't do that. So there was there, there was a, a lack of credibility from you know from the owners and anything the IRA might say, and they couldn't be satisfied on that point. And then in the heat of the hunt, the person who had been in contact before rang up again and said. Uh, the horse is dead and left it at that. Who is Sean O'Callaghan? What's his role here? Sean O'Callaghan is a a murky uh, uh, double agent. He was was a member of the IRA um, but he was vilified by them when it emerged that he was a uh, an OUC informer. He was also a Garda informer uh, and he was spirited away to a new life. As you know, many of these people end up dead with a bullet through the back of their heads as with Dennis Donaldson in in, in Donegal and others. But uh, Sean O'Callaghan 
actually wrote a book about his double life and it was called The Informer. And he gave an account of um, the horse proving very skittish. Obviously, it's highly strong anyway and unable to be controlled by these unfamiliar faces, even though they had the IRA gang composed, uh, comprised um, people who are experienced horse handlers and so on, you know. But um, the horse became uncontrollable and eventually had to be shot, according to um, Sean O'Callaghan. So he confirmed it was taken by the IRA and that it had become uncontrollable soon into the kidnap and had been shot. And that after the horse was shot, the IRA had still tried to extract um, money as a ransom, but now hadn't the power to deliver uh, anything. And um, he used a code word in, in his account that the uh, that had been mentioned to the uh, to the uh, equine journalist Derek Thompson, uh, and Thompson, of course, knew there was a ring of truth to this story because he recognised the code word and he had never said it to anybody. Why were the IRA kidnapping so many people at that particular point in time? Well, they were short of uh, they were short of money for their own supporters and for the importation of weapons. They were being forced to you know to trade in, in in weaponry because it was it was before the outpouring of you know military largesse from Muammar Gaddafi and so they had to effectively source them in America where money talks and there had been major efforts by the Irish government to cut de- to clamp down on a so-called charity called Noraid which was allegedly raising funds for uh, from women and children victims of, you know, who, who are the wives of and dependents of prisoners, for instance, you know, uh, and and helping out others in the Irish struggle for independence. St. Patrick's Day, more colourful in New York than it is in Ireland. But behind the dancing and the fun, there's a more serious side to the parade. Last year, the IRA support group, NORAID, nominated the deceased hunger striker Bobby Sands as an honorary Grand Marshal giving a political overtone to this great Irish-American occasion. At the centre of the controversy, this man, 81-year-old Michael Flannery, seen here visiting Dublin last year. He's a lifelong member of the IRA and a fundraiser for them since arriving in the United States in 1927. Last November, Flannery was accused of buying guns for shipment to the IRA. Though acquitted, he's never denied the charge. This year, Flannery is the Grand Marshal of the parade, which he foresees as a massive demonstration of support for the IRA and its offshoot Sinn Féin. Well, the Irish government and the American government indeed launched a major attempt to, you know, to say that if you donate to Norway, your money is actually going to the waging of terrorist war in Northern Ireland and the killing and maiming of women and children rather than, you know, their support. So that was having an effect and was dwindling funds and so on. So, and even to look after, even if, you know, to pay the odd 50 quid to its foot soldiers, the IRA needed to, to raise funds. It was at a low ebb and there were a series of kidnaps. So it's, it's, a, it's a cash flow problem that, that they basically have. And they had, they had several gangs or, or teams working on specifically on kidnappings. At the time. Yeah, well, they had one particular unit that majored it. And of course, that could depend on support from in ancillary areas if they were if they were saying we're going to do stage this in County Louth or in County Limerick and so on, they, uh, the local uh, members of the IRA would be in support. And as I said, there were always, there were always people who were, who were drawn into these uh, ancillary roles besides the, the team that was involved in taking the animal. 
What's the general thesis on where Shergar is buried? Well, the general belief, you know, that has taken root now since a TV documentary was made, is that the horse is in County Leitrim. Yeah, I think this is entirely fanciful. And uh, people imagine that because Don Tidy was found in, 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 in those woods there um, near Ballinamore, um, that uh, the horse must be there as well. But this kind of presupposes that you would be able to get a horse, not just, you know, a horse definitely taken by a South Amar grouping, that they would take the horse to County Leitrim and then try and get, you know, a thoroughbred up a very heavily wooded slope into 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 some burial pit there. You know what I mean? It's 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 a bit wrong-headed, I think, and it's also, you know, we don't have any. You're trying to move an animal at night, particularly in the in in the Republic. At least the IRA dominated on the ground in, in South Armagh, and people did not inform. But if you were trying to bury the horse in the in the Republic, it would be, or, you know or even take the, the horse to some safe place, you would be um, you would be in grave danger of, of somebody informing on you and everybody being, being rounded up, you know? So I don't think uh, the horse is in the Republic at all. So where Shergar has, has become a, a kind of a cash cry over, over the years, often shown at, at, at Sinn Féin, remains a, a, a mystery. You've done your own research, though, into the disappearance of, of <laughs> yeah. Shergar. What's, yeah. what's your thesis? Yeah, well, as you know, you make the good point. I mean, every so often bones are dug up in County Kerry or somewhere and there was a, a report one time about holes in the back of an animal's skull, you know, as if it had been shot and so on. I know the Sunday Telegraph in England came out with an entirely lurid story about the horse being machine gunned, for which there's, there's no evidence. Um, actually, it struck me um, after the... Um, we got the Good Friday Agreement and so on in 1998 and so on. And we had a series of related efforts at confidence building thereafter, including the establishment of a commission on victims' remains, you know, for the disappeared. Well, it struck me that the uh, all the people on the list of disappeared were human, you know, and that's, you know, obviously human life is worth vastly more than any animal's life. And yet at the same time, why wouldn't the IRA want to point to where Shergar was buried if the if the animal could be dug up, because it would restore their reputation. And, you know, that's not the right phrase, but it would do much to, you know, to assuage a, a public that was horrified at what the IRA did and the, you know, the jobs and livelihoods it put at risk by taking this horse. And also by, you know, um, by hoaxing the Grand National and so on. The Grand National was cancelled one year. You know, people disappointed because of subversive Irish, subversive um, threats on, on, onto the course and so on. So began Britain's biggest evacuation since the Second World War. Operation Entry, God Almighty. Not only were we evacuating 60,000 people, we were seizing 6,000 cars within the arena. It's a desolate stand. People left the race course with literally what they were standing in. This security alert has caused chaos. So why not... Um, you know, why not give up the, the the old bones of this animal? You know, it would have enabled the vet, Stan Cosgrove, for instance, to prove conclusively to the Norwich Union, who refused to pay him out on his insurance, that the horse was dead. The Norwich Union said there was no evidence the horse is dead. Clearly the horse is dead now because it's nearly been 40 years and no horse lives that long. But poor old Stan was, ne- was never paid his insurance money. Um, I started 
thinking about the fact that the uh, that the horse wasn't on the disappeared list, and that 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 puzzled me. And then I realised in 2013 that it was exactly 30 years after the horse had gone missing in 1983. And there was a 30-year rule whereby you're supposed to uh, um, deposit files, investigation files, with the National Archives. So I wrote to the guards, and this is all on file and everything, and uh, asked for the Shergar file. Um, and I, I did the same with the National Archives. I wrote to the National Archives and asked them to use their good offices to prize the file from the guards. The guards wouldn't give it up. Um, there might be some embarrassments in there, but they, they still haven't given it up, and the, and the file is still with them. It's not a live investigation anymore. Um, and uh, I, I started thinking about writing a book called Taking Shergar, and I thought that the uh, the best way to do that would be to make contact with the IRA and try and talk to people who were involved in the actual kidnap and tell the story of from the inside out, as it were, of the animal's uh, abduction and so on. And so I sent out some feelers, and one Saturday, two members... Just to be clear, you are a, a long-standing <laughs> crime correspondent, political correspondent, and historian, so you you didn't just mention this to somebody down the pub. You have, you have ways sure. of going about this. Yes. Sure, exactly, yeah. So, but, but, so the word was let out, as, <laughs> as they say. And one Saturday, I found myself sitting at my kitchen table with uh, two, two volunteers, as it were, two IRA men has to be stressed that these um, individuals weren't part of the kidnap gang. They just wanted to know from the movement's point of view what, were, you know, what was my interest in this and why would I writing it. So I patiently uh, explained that I would, uh, here was my proposal to write the story of the operation from the inside out, what went wrong, and that I would, uh, I didn't need to know their names, I still don't know their names, uh, and that we would give you know, code names to every member of the uh, of the team that spoke to me. There'd be a Billy and a Paddy and a Hugh and a Jack and so forth, you know, and it'd be very simple. Uh, but I said, at the end of the day, in order to verify this account of the taking of the horse, which would be, you know, it would have been, I hope, a bestseller, um, we'd have to cough up the bones. You know, th th this would have to be final proof on foot of the publication of this book that what it says about the horse and where the horse lies buried is provable. You dig up, and these would be verified by DNA as Shergar's bones and so on. And um, after a pause, when they took all this in, they said, uh, no, no, I don't think so. And, and I was saying, I was trying to launch into persuasion and so on, and uh, at the end of the day, they gave me to understand that the horse's bones could not be produced. And that shocked me, but then I, I, I started to realize what, what they meant. What they meant was that the and they confirmed, you know, that the uh, the animal was not on the island of Ireland, um, and uh, that that blew me away. So I tried to ask further as to um, what might have happened, and the understanding I was given was that there was an original intention to put the horse on a on a vessel and to take it to take it somewhere where it would be later. You know, I, I suggested France, I think, and they didn't demur from that, that the horse would later be, you know, unveiled to, uh, you know, first of all, the searching Gardaí and OUC wouldn't find the horse because it wouldn't be there to be found and it would be later be unveiled and this would show the international reach of the IRA and so on. 
once the uh, and it would be prestigious for them or whatever. I don't know what you know. The, obviously, the horse died before anything like that could be put into operation. But then my impression was that yeah, there was a there was a boat involved and. Again, I'm just, this is complete hearsay, but what I took from it was that the horse, the horse's carcass was loaded onto the boat. The boat put out from some cove or port, you know, in Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, at a suitable distance, 10 or 12 miles offshore, that was the end of uh, Sugar. So we will never truly find out what happened to, to Shurgar? Yeah, Shurgar sh- sleeps with the fishes. That's that's my understanding, and so therefore the uh, you know the, the rapacious uh, sea uh, creatures would have gone to the horse in in, in no time. You know, it would have sunk like a stone, and uh, you know, and my my information. I've actually uh, um, I have a, an equine vet in, in South Africa with whom I'm great friends, and he's a you know, equine equine remains don't float the way humans would, you know, so they wouldn't even come near to the surface. Don't want to get too graphic about it, or even a bit of gases and so on, but even the bones would be gone uh, at this stage. There was not a trace. If the horse went into the salt water, there's not a trace or a particle left of it at this point. He was a dancing horse. He was very spirited. He had one funny eye, and his personality appealed to the punters. He was just a nice, cuddly horse, and that's what made him so different. He was normal, but he went faster than anything else. And that was Senan Maloney. Today's episode was produced and researched by Gareth Mulhall, with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from the BBC, ITN, Channel 4, RTE, and Virgin Media. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. And stay tuned for more in the Unsolved series. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts.